Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 133 for the week ending December 14, 2018, the New York City at Christmas Time edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. As I and Mrs. Compliance Evangelist prepare to head to New York City for a magical December weekend, we celebrate the Cowboys taking control of the NL East. Jay mourns yet another Patriot loss. To the Dolphins in Miami, we consider the trade war on China and potential prisoners of war, Petavesa, and some of the week's other top compliance and ethics stories. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Weekend FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Weekend FCPA with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. As I and Mrs. Compliance Evangelist prepare to head to New York City for a magical December weekend and celebrate the Cowboys taking control of the NLEs. Jay is still in mourning over the Miami Dolphin win over his beloved Patriots last weekend in Miami. So we decided to help Jay through work through this struggle. We would consider some of the top compliance and ethics stories over the week. And we had some interesting one, Jay. So you want to just jump right into it? Yep, totally, Tom. Uh, first story we have is uh, taking a look back at Bernie Madoff's legacy, which is now uh, resulted in Whistleblower Inc., which I'll uh, describe in a couple moments. Uh, this article comes to us from the Wall Street Journal by Gregory Zuckerman and Dave Michaels. And uh, 10 years ago, was when we had found out about uh, the whole Bernie Madoff scheme. And uh, for several years before uh, the scheme had actually happened, there was a forensic accountant named Harry Markopoulos who kept uh, alerting the SEC in New York and Boston, but to no avail. And one of the things that uh, is the legacy coming out of the whole Madoff affair was uh, setting up basically the uh, whistleblower uh, hotline and tips that were being given to the SEC. And uh, in the time which this has been set up in the last seven years, uh, $326 million has been awarded to 59 uh, whistleblowers. And uh, the one problem that's seems to have stemmed from this now is that back in uh, 2012, there were 3,000 reports in the last six years that has mushroomed over to 5,200 reports. And what seems to be happening now is you've got a lot of folks who are trying to report uh, whistleblower incidences that may or may not be factual, and that seems to be uh, clogging up the system. But uh, there have been some suggestions on how to make the uh, 
system much more efficient. Uh, one might be that if you have three bogus claims in a row that you got barred from uh, um, being able to upload again. Also, um, the agency has proposed ways to reject flawed applications, and they also have suggested that they might want to scale proposals back on their biggest payouts, which have been uh, in excess of $100 million. But, uh, you know, the, the system seems to be working well, and um, they're been given uh, basically growth to a, a little bit of an industry that there are attorneys now, former government prosecutors or people who are forensics uh, folks who have gone into this full-time, and there are even uh, certain law far firms like Lubertom Sucro that specialize in the whistleblower uh, arena. So um, this, we can really kind of point back to Madoff giving us the incentive to come up with uh, a plan to uh, provide tips to the SEC. And um, the one other thing that I forgot to mention is, is also inherent with this backlog is, is it does take a long time to get paid off on a claim, even when it eventually happens. Any uh, thoughts? Well, uh, I would just note for the record that the attorney general designate William Barr has previously uh, come out against whistleblower awards. Uh, this was in the uh, key TAM uh, litigation um, Federal Claims Act. So uh, although obviously he would be the attorney general and uh, not over the Securities and Exchange Commission, it would be interesting to see someone so antithetical to uh, the government using whistleblowers to advance government interests uh, going forward. Uh, Jay, I have some, uh, if not sad news uh, or bad news, perhaps dispiriting news on the uh, uh, international fight against bribery and corruption. I came across two reports this week. Uh, one was a UN press release, which set the global loss of uh, monies through bribery and corruption at 3.6 trillion. That's T is in Tom trillion uh, loss to the global economy from bribery and corruption. This was uh, bookended by a report from the OECD, which found that bribe takers, as, a pro, as opposed to bribe payors, are rarely uh, arrested and prosecuted. So um, both, I think, were uh, very dispiriting. And uh, if anyone listening, if you're ever asked, uh, well, really, isn't bribery and corruption just a localized problem? And uh, it's really not that big a deal. And those people really want to do it anyway. It's their fault. Here's a figure you can throw at them, $3.6 trillion annual loss to the global economy. This, uh, I hope that's something we can improve in our lifetime, Jay. Yeah, just, just staggering numbers and uh, somewhat depressing if you think about it for too long. Um, speaking about something else that can be somewhat depressing if you speak about it too long, uh, we have an article from um, Sports Illustrated dated December 11th by Allah Avin. Del Dame, I guess. And it once again is another black eye for the NFL's uh, process of handling internal investigations. This time it has to do with the Kareem Hunt case. And Kareem Hunt uh, was a star running back uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. And there is footage that became recently available from um, um, TMZ. TMZ video. TMZ, yeah, which shows him uh, beating up uh, a female party goer 
who is at his hotel room. And uh, again, this was something that NFL said they were going to investigate themselves. They uh, made a very tepid attempt to try to get the tape from the um, hotel where the incident happened. They were denied, and they didn't really take action on this until the uh, clip appeared on TMZ. Uh, This also was discussed recently at the NFL owners meeting, and Jerry Jones, who I don't agree with very often, has argued that the league should not be conducting their own investigations. And I would say uh, Mr. Jones has this one right. You're not, uh, this is not a deflate gate hangover, is it, Jay? Not at all. Deflate Not what? at all. Yeah. Uh, okay. Just checking there. Uh, yeah. Um, but re- really, it's just pathetic, isn't it? The, the NFL, just, anytime one of these things come up. Yeah, they must uh, use the NCAA uh, investigative staff as their uh, minor league team uh, because this really is pathetic. And if you look at uh, the hunt, um, I don't even I won't even call it an investigation because it doesn't even uh, to say that it's an investigation demeans the word investigation. Um, first, they said, well, it was really a chief's matter and we're not going to talk to him. And the chief said, well, it's really a league matter uh, because the league put uh, doles out discipline. We don't. And so the league never even talked to Hunt. They never talked to Hunt uh, in spite of the fact that there was have now been three instances which were apparently fairly well known. On the video, I'm going to give them a little, cut them a little slack because they maintain that they will not pay for videos, and I'm not quite sure how TMZ gets theirs. Uh, They certainly do not have subpoena power is all I will say. Uh, But just absolutely pathetic. Uh, No sensitivity to any of this. Uh, Kansas City did release Hunt, and no one has picked him up, so he has – been sanctioned in the marketplace, but uh, for um, someone who, uh, for an organization that really uh, prides itself on uh, being the shield and, and do, trying to do the right thing, they once again and completely, totally, and utterly uh, failed. And uh, how, much, how many how, uh, how many games was Tom Brady suspended? I can't, I can't remember the air. You remember Jay? Four, four, four for an equipment issue. Equipment. Yes. So, yes, yes. But uh, being from Boston, you do not believe in conspiracy theories, and you do not believe that the league was out to uh, get your Patriots. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe in your former life, you know, you could point them in a, a reputable investigative firm. So th- this might be a rhetorical, but when is all this stuff going to fall off feet at Roger Goodell, and how um, how safe do you think he is among these multi-billionaire uh, owners who have a product that they have to worry about fans still yes, wanting to, to see. Okay. Yeah, yes. I like those rhetoricals. Uh, why don't you tell us about our favorite Venezuelan state oil company, Petavesa? We, we've got two articles on them, but this first one's really interesting. Right. So uh, David Boys, a uh, uh, well-known uh, corporate lawyer, uh, represented uh, Theranos right up till the time he didn't. Uh, as his last most prominent client, um, uh, represented Harvey Weinstein up until the time he didn't, um, is taken on the representation of Pettivesa. And this would seem to be incredibly mm, different, I guess. That's a technical legal phrase, uh, because um, – 
PDVSA is the national oil company of Venezuela who has very bad relations with the United States. So he and or others, or in conjunction with others, dreamed up this PDVSA litigation trust where they're allegedly going to sue U.S.-based companies who engaged in bribery and corruption to get PDVSA contracts. Now, uh, there are several interesting issues, as I suppose Jonathan Armstrong would say. Number one, uh, as PDVSA is a national oil company, uh, does he have appropriate authority granted by the Venezuelan government to do this? Two, uh, given the relations between the United States and uh, Venezuela, uh, would the United States allow uh, a properly documented and created legal entity uh, to move forward? Um, three, uh, did PDVSA really lose money here, or are they just so corrupt? Is the organization itself so corrupt that they were part of the entire bribery scheme? Certainly with the 19 individuals uh, from uh, who've been uh, indicted and or pled guilty in the United States who were former PDVSA employees, one would uh, get the impression that the, the entire organization um, is uh, running uh, in the running for the world's most corrupt national oil company. And then finally, uh, and perhaps for you non-lawyers out there, uh, uh, the biggest eye raiser is that um, typically when you do a contingent fee case, the fee split is one third to the lawyer uh, and then 60% or 70% to the uh, six, 67.1 third to the client. Well, here they reverse that. And Boys is leading the group to split the two-thirds amount. So uh, who uh, agreed with that? Did they have authority from the Venezuelan government to make that agreement? Uh, if monies are collected, is it going to be wired over to Venezuela now with the relations with the United States? Or is it going to be held in the future in case there's regime change? So lots of really interesting questions um, the article in the Wall Street Journal points out that uh, Boy's firm <clears throat> could garner as much as uh, $50 million out of this litigation. It's currently in a procedural battle in Florida over whether he can even uh, has the authority from the Venezuelan government to bring this uh, litigation. So uh, it was a really interesting article, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see um, how it goes forward and, frankly, what happens to Boy's reputation after having represented Harvey Weinstein and uh, Theranos, uh, and now uh, Pettavesa. Seems like he might be on the uh, the downside of his career. Well, uh, I know that, uh, you know, there's a nice list and a naughty list, and I'll just leave it at that. All right. Well, here's a list somebody wants to be on um, from the Risk and Compliance Journal from our good friend Samuel Rubenfeld. Charges in Panama Papers probe shine light on enablers. So um, basically, um, when this came out two or three years ago, there's been a lot of um, latency about these uh, charges coming forward to affect larger clients. Uh, recently, uh, Deutsche Bank has been shown to be uh, revealed to having issues from uh, um um, from the uh, Panama Papers, and uh, in this article, um, Jeffrey Berman, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, said in a statement that the uh, Panama Papers provided a playbook to repatriate untaxed money into the U.S. banking system, 
and our colleague Sharuchi Shah, who's the president and chief executive of Coalition for Integrity, said that these allegations serve as a reminder to company service providers, such as lawyers, accountants, and others, to ensure that they're conducting appropriate due diligence to prevent people from committing misconduct from companies they create. So although it was legal in certain these shell companies, uh, basically the people who use these instruments, the lawyers, the advisors, they uh, should have been well aware of what these vehicles were uh, designed for and that there should be some culpability on their part as well. So, Jay, I have a question for you. Yes. A hypothetical question, because I know, you know, being a Hollywood guy, you love hypothetical questions. Here's the hypothetical question, and maybe even you could think of a movie out of this. It's such a juicy hypothetical question. You, uh, there's a lawyer, and he represents uh, the president of the United States, the most powerful human being on earth. And he represents that president in some actually fairly nasty um, criminal investigations and civil litigation. Okay, I'm with and, you so far. So, okay, and obviously attorney-client privilege, obviously lots of, uh, you know, very frank and open discussions uh, about evidence, strategies, et cetera. Uh, okay. uh, now, um, this same defense lawyer uh, is uh, may start to represent foreign governments uh, as a, as a lawyer because, you know, he's a lawyer and lawyers need clients. Just because you represent the president doesn't mean he's your only client. Uh, especially, you know, you're outside, not an in-house counsel. So, uh, and he's paid several million dollars to represent foreign uh, foreign governments. Um, now, I know you're not a lawyer, and you know, perhaps you don't, you've not been to law school. Although you did go to the University of Pennsylvania, and you probably stayed at a Holiday Inn recently. So, uh, any uh, would that uh, in a Hollywood kind of way would that be a conflict of interest? Um, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it gets you to the uh, definitely gets you to the end of the first act and creates some uh, controversy. So uh, it certainly could happen there. And I think what may happen is that there could be some confusion that maybe if I was uh, <clears throat> said lawyer and I was selling my security services all around the world, that there could be some people who may mistake what I was doing on my own that I could be potentially uh, representing the most powerful man in the world, and that if they uh, chose to hire me, that they might be gaining some uh, or occurring some favor with the current administration. Do you, th- do you think, think something like that could happen? Well, um, you know, you would probably say, Tom, uh, you, you certainly can't make a movie out of it because a movie has to make logical sense. And you probably can't even write a uh, novel because fiction has to be believable. And that would never happen. Well, if you want to see whether or not it, it could happen and it is happening uh, we, in the show notes, uh, a really interesting article in the New York Times by Kenneth Vogel. So that's there. And um, Tom, what is got Matt Kelly riled up about the SEC and the PCAOB. Well, I'm not sure riled up is uh, quite the phrase. Uh, Matt and I actually did a podcast on this, and and I kind of love when I'm to the left of Matt because it doesn't happen very often. But um, 
Uh, of course, Jay, you're aware of the arrest of the uh, chief financial officer of Huawei. We talked about that last week on the podcast, Juliet Ming. And uh, you're certainly aware of the trade war between the United States and China that's currently ongoing. Well, last Friday, uh, literally uh, at the close of business, the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, and the PCAOB chairman uh, actually uh, had press releases where uh, they faulted China for their uh, audit or rather lack and uh, lack of transparency and lack of audits of firms in China. And uh, Clayton's angle was Chinese companies who, through reverse mergers, <coughs> purchase U.S. companies and uh, are listed on the U.S. stock exchange yet do not have sufficiently transparent auditable statements. And uh, this is certainly a, a way to communicate to the marketplace that both the SEC and the PCAOB are going to come down like a ton of bricks on Chinese companies. So, uh, it was, uh, uh, of course, Matt, you know, very middle down the road, straight up, you know, never cynical, always just uh, reports the facts, uh, did not see any conspiracy in that. Whereas Conspiracy Tom uh, saw this as a, a part of an entire strategy that the uh, Trump administration is using, uh, kind of separate and apart. They've announced that uh, actually the arrest of Ming was a part of that. So, uh, and they're going to use her as a bargaining chip. So um, uh, really interesting. It's kind of all coming together. And you see the U.S. government using a variety of tools at its disposal in a way that it has never done so uh, in the past. Um, so, who, you know, it's it's not clear where this is going to go. The Chinese have already, in a tit-for-tat move, uh, um, arrested a Canadian diplomat. So I'm sure arrest of American or Americans are in the works as well. So uh, if you're thinking about traveling to China, maybe you want to do a Skype call. So uh, anyway, uh, really interesting. And, uh, you know, Conspiracy Tom is at work. All right. So uh, you and Mel Gibson uh, putting up uh, thumbtacks and pictures all over your office, connecting the lines. I like it. You know, um, actually, and I'm wearing tin foil over my head as we record this podcast. <laughs> All right. I, that, that's a vision that's going to stay in the mind for a bit. Um, as you promised, another article on Petavesa to us from our Dick Kesson over at the FCPA blog. DOJ cooperator admits obstruction in Venezuela bribery case. And this takes place in the center of all energy FCPA Houston, a former Houston-based procurement officer for Venezuelan energy company, was supposed to be helping the DOJ and the graft in the company. He pleaded guilty Monday to obstructing the government's investigation. Enzo Eliezer Gravina, 56 of, do I say Katie or Caddy? Katie. Katie Texas worked for Pedavesa. He pleaded guilty. Katie? All right. He pled, he pled uh, guilty in federal court in Houston to one count of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, Gravina had already pleaded guilty in the case in December 2015 to, to conspiracy to launder money, making false statements on his federal income tax return. In his earlier plea, he admitted to taking bribes to help two U.S.-based businessmen win work from Petavesa. He agreed after the earlier guilty plea to help the DOJ providing more information about corruption at the company. So uh, I don't know. They, they just can't get a break, can they? 
is having a tough time here in Houston or in Katy, Texas. I should say that. All right. So, uh, Tom, um, you and Mike Volkov got something coming up next week. What's happening? That we do. We are uh, putting on a uh, webinar uh, hosted by Conversant. Uh, our good friend Katie Smith will be um, uh, hosting Honor. us. And we are going to uh, take a look at uh, the year in FCPA enforcement, 2018. And where the year in enforcement may go in 2019. So it's sort of a retrospective and look and forward look. I'm greatly looking forward to it. Uh, Mike is uh, a great great knowledge on these matters. And uh, when I or when I can uh, pontificate onto the veiled land of the future as Karnak the Magnificent, I love the opportunity to do so. Uh, we're going to link to it in the show notes. It's the webinar is free. It's next Tuesday. So. Uh, Please sign up for it and take a take a listen. I think it will be uh, very informative, and um, so there are going to be several webinars over the next uh, few weeks on this topic. But uh, this will be the first one, so you can get way ahead of the crowd. And uh, you've got something else happening with our colleague Candice Tall at Infertel Worldwide. What 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 did you and Candice put? So Jay, this week I did uh, a, a five part podcast series on investigative due diligence. And Candace um, has been doing this for quite a long time. Uh, I think she'd allow me to uh, to list the number of years because we did it in the podcast. But she's been in this field for 33 years. So she's was in it when they did real, you know, boots on ground leather work. Uh, and she does it now with um, uh, computers, software, and boots on ground. So we took a, a five-part series. We uh, looked at when basic due diligence is no longer enough what chief compliance officers both want and need to know, what is and what is not working currently in investigative investigative due diligence. We took a look at investigative due diligence in the mergers and acquisitions context, and we concluded with innovations in investigative due diligence and going forward. So it's a really a fascinating exploration of what uh, many people don't focus on, I think, enough. Everyone knows what due diligence is. But uh, when you get into the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty, Candace is really one of the top uh, uh, people around in this. And so it was really a pleasure for me to uh, to uh, uh, host her on this series on a special presentation of the uh, Compliance Podcast Network. Excellent. And uh, any other podcasts that we need to make people aware of? So next week, I'm doing a five-part podcast series. Uh, where I uh, interviewed Dr. Kyle Welch of George Washington University on his recently released academic paper on the use and efficacy of internal whistleblower uh, reporting systems. Uh, we really took a deep dive into his report. I think that you will find it uh, really interesting. We took a look at the, we introduced it, took a look at the background into whistleblower and whistleblower laws. We looked at his research. We uh, gave, uh, He told us what he thought he was going to find in the way of predictions, and he gave us uh, what the key findings were. And then at the on the Friday, Friday episode, we tied it all together as to what it means for the compliance practitioner. So that's going to be a great series. I'm really having a lot of fun with these uh, five-part series. And uh, uh, as Affiliated Monitor sponsors this podcast, uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, working with uh, you and the Affiliated Monitors team on our uh, five-part podcast that we've been running monthly. So um, I hope uh, the, uh, I know people are finding these useful. I'm I'm learning a ton and having a ton of fun doing them. 
as are we. And uh, another thing just to put out there, I believe this drops on Saturday. Uh, Tom and I have a special Christmas edition of Compliance Popcorn. And we took a look at the recent holiday classic, Elf. We wanted to see if it still stood up and what kind of ethics compliance lessons we could pull, we could draw out of that. So I believe that drops on Saturday. Is that correct? Uh, actually, it drops on Saturday, the 21st, 22nd. Oh, so I'm, I'm a week early. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. But just, just build the anticipation. That's right. That's right. We'll talk about it again next week. All right. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 133 for the week ending December 14, 2018, the Christmas time in New York City edition. Thanks so much and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. As I indicated in the uh, this week's episode, I'm having a great podcast series next week with Dr. Kyle Welch, who uh, released an academic paper that's of extraordinary importance to the compliance practitioner and the compliance profession. I hope you will check out my one-week podcast series with him on his paper, Use and Efficacy of Whistleblower Reporting Systems. Also, I hope you will join Jay and I on next week on September 22nd when we release our second Popcorn and Compliance episode. We take a look at the holiday classic Elf. Next week, Jay and I will return for This Week in FCPA, and I hope you will join us then. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>